Hello, and you are listening to episode 126 of Just Get a Real Job podcast. I am, of course, your host, Jamie McKinley, and I'm super excited about this week's episode. And joining us on the podcast this week is Oz Arshad and Marcus Anthony Thomas, who are both writer directors, but who also some of you might know from an amazing podcast called The Director's Take. And this was such an interesting conversation to have. We spoke about lots of stuff. We actually end up speaking, as often the case in the podcast, for nearly two hours. So I'm going to be putting this episode out in two parts, which is always nice to do. So this first part will be, of course, this episode. You're listening to it right now, but the second part will be out next week. But I'm really, really thrilled to have Marcus and Oz on the podcast. In part one, we spoke about their first steps into becoming directors themselves, their earlier influences on their work as directors. They defined the role of a director. They spoke about the Directors Take podcast and how that came about, how they met, etc. There's lots of really insightful stuff. And next week's episode, part two, we really go into the, the geeky stuff and we get really technical as well. So if you're a director, I think you're going to love this episode. And if you're just interested in the creative industries, I think you're going to love this episode as well. Be sure to check out their podcast, The Director's Take, as well. It's, they've made an amazing resource and it's really cut through and they're going to be bringing a second series of that out soon as well. But they've got lots of episodes. There's a link in the show notes. And they've also honestly had some great guests on as well. But no, it was so nice to have Marcus and Oz on the podcast. You know, we've not had enough directors on their podcast as well. So it's lovely to sort of cover that role a bit more on this week's episode. And, you know, I've always wanted this to be a resource and a useful resource for people breaking into the creative industries or people interested in the creative industries no matter what part of it so you know I, I love having people like Marcus and Ozon who have also created such an incredible resource for their podcast so be sure to go and check that out and be sure to share this week's episode if you enjoy it as well and if you enjoy this week's episode there's lots of other great episodes if you're particularly interested in directing we've also had BAFTA award winning documentary director Hannah Curry on the podcast twice so you might particularly want to go and check out her episodes if this is the first one you'd ever listen to here but anyway without much further ado please enjoy episode 126 of Just Get A Real job Marcus, Oz, thank you so much for joining me today. It's lovely to have you both on. Some of my listeners might know you both from the Directors Take podcast, but you're also directors in your own right. And I'm very, very excited to have you on Just Get A Real Job. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Cool. As I often forget when I have two people on, I might have to sometimes direct for when you both to speak, but I don't know. We can just go one at a time and then we can switch up as we go. Yeah. Cool. But do you want to start by sort of introducing yourselves a bit about who you are, what you do, just for the listeners that might not know who you are? Because I know you're both very popular in the podcast game now, so I'm sure at least some of our listeners have listened to your podcast already. Yeah, do you want to go first, Oz? I'll let you go first, Marcus. Oh, thanks. My, yeah. Appreciate that. <laughs> and then my brain will kick in I'm fine. Yeah, so my name's Oz Arshad, I'm a writer-director, and I'm also now a co-podcast host with Marcus as well, and I've been writing and directing kind of since 2016, but I've done, you know, for a few years before that, I did I did a few other things as well, smaller projects, just kind of like getting mm-hmm. stuff off the ground, and yeah, that's broadly the journey, I'm sure that if listeners do go listen to our podcast, we talk a lot about our 
our path and go into more detail about it. It was very helpful for research, so I much appreciate it. Yeah, the first episode, <laughs> right at the top. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I'm Marcus Anthony Thomas. I'm a, I'm a writer-director as well. I've been making films... Well, when I first went to uni, that's when I started making films, I would say. And that was in 2012, actually, so like 12 years ago now. But that was the first time I picked up a camera, and I've just been on that journey ever since, really. Probably formalised trying to specifically be a director in a, since about maybe 2015. And yeah, spent time as a writer developing projects and trying to get anyone to get involved and do stuff, making little comedy sketches and whatever else. And then struggled to get a short film that got me into the National Film and Television School. And yeah, then been on a bit of a crazy pathway ever since, really. No, well, I really appreciate, as I said at the start, you both of you coming on. And what, what's really interesting about both of you is you both had very different paths into the industry. I always say this every week, but I mean, everyone has a, a different pathway, but you both have had quite different paths. Obviously, oh, you were a teacher for a, over like a mm. decade, and I believe you still sometimes teach and stuff now. And Marcus, obviously, you did, you were a video producer and went to universities, like NFTS and stuff like that. So maybe on paper, some people would say a more conventional route, not that it's really a thing in this industry, but mm. it's really interesting for our listeners to sort of have two directors on and get a bit of a different take on your journeys and sort of how it all works. And I'm sure you both picked up so many nuggets of information from all the directors and people you've been interviewing over the last couple of years. So got lots yeah. to cover. Yeah, that's kind of it. It's, we're both coming at it from completely different backgrounds. So we feel like we're not just coming at it from one perspective. I think people seem to buy into that a bit. It's very cool. Mm. Before we sort of go any further and get into all the, the fun stuff, I just I was curious, how did you both meet each other? Because I know you both did the House of the Dragon mentorship stuff, but did you meet there or did you know each other before that? Literally well, that, there. That was it. That... Yeah. And like... If you're thrown into a situation like that with someone, the only other person you can relate to how ridiculous that whole thing was was the other person thrown in with you. So that was that was it, really. We only had each other. <laughs> yeah. Did you think back then you'd end up starting this podcast and go on this journey? Absolutely yeah. not. No. <laughs> it, was, it, it was pretty. It was pretty mad how how much we both got got on and how much like we didn't we didn't ever argue and we were together all the time. Like only yeah. like, when I say all the time, it's not even an exaggeration. Every mm. single day for more than eight hours a day, we were together yeah. all the time. It was like a friendship with film hours. Yeah, <laughs> it's just yeah. literally it. We were our own department, so that was it. Was just us two. Yeah. Mm. No, it's, I'm really I'm interested to sort of talk to you more about how shadowing works as a director. Obviously, it's a big part of it. I'm going to sort of attempt to do a lot of the information you do, spend a whole episode on as individual questions as we go on through this episode. But I'll start with a tricky question, perhaps. But do you both want to tell me what a director means to you? So what is the role of a director for both of you? Start with you, Marcus. In the episode we recorded today, I pulled out a quote from Kubrick about this exact thing. And I'm trying <laughs> desperately not to like erase that from my brain and come up with something original. But yeah, I, I really think that to put an idea through anywhere between 30 and thousands of people's heads for that to come out resembling the initial idea is impossible unless you've got someone who's there being like a beacon to communicate that so yeah it's it's all you can do is kind of like have a vision for something and stick with it and then be very open to the process of evolution throughout and just you're going to get bombarded with questions. I'd say you need to have a strong taste and sense of what you like and don't like and have a strong grounding in the craft of it so that when you're being thrown hundreds of questions, it's, you have to have faith that it's, it, all of your knowledge and perspective and life experience is just going to come out because you can't, there's no time to overthink everything. So yeah, I, I think that's a lot of what it is it, it really depends on the situation because as a director you're thrown in so many different scenarios and situations where you have to you have to use like 
different skill sets and different parts of your personality to kind of navigate it but yeah i mean to really really sit it all down you're, you're literally like a visual storyteller that's kind of it and you are a storyteller storyteller it's just through the medium of cinema to be really basic about it but yeah it's it's such a big question and it, it requires multiple podcasts to try and answer it <laughs> Which is a good job. You have one that people can go and listen to, but I appreciate you trying to answer a very nuanced question in simpler terms. Uh, Oz, what about yourself? I'm trying to remember, we've been asked this question by, I guess, what I said, so I don't sound like I'm contradicting. <laughs> I think it was something along the lines of, I see it as, you're in charge of the, the audience's journey into that story and where you place the camera and that just I think at a surface level is what it's about because you're there to ultimately entertain the audience. And obviously everything, every, everything, it's filed underneath that in terms of the message, in terms of trying to move people emotionally, all of that. But ultimately, you're entertaining the audience and it's the director's job to ensure the placement of that camera to make that as thrilling and as compelling as possible. Cool. Thank you very much for, again, answering such a difficult question. Um, there's loads of other... I've got like a whole section called Directing 101, which I'll ask you about later on. But I sort of yeah. want you now both to cast your minds back a bit further. We like to normally start the podcast by asking people about their sort of earliest creative memories. So we can start with you this time, Oz, but do you remember remember as a youngster what like was there something you did creatively that you sort of maybe suggested that one day you'd be interested in some sort of creative career in the future yeah yeah it was but the, the first thing I ever remember that I was kind of thought this is good it was in my first ever art lesson because when I was at like primary school and then I went to high school we didn't do art so when I got into high school and we did art the first thing we had to do was we had to draw this Heinz baked beans thing and I spent mm. hours on it and it was really really cool I was so <laughs> proud of it but what happened is and this is one of the reasons why I did become a teacher was the teacher just completely dissed it and didn't just said oh shit that basically mm. in the comment back and then I, I I never took it seriously ever again I just thought I'm oh, shit I'm not gonna do it so that was my earliest creative memory that's always st- stayed with me maybe maybe everything I'm doing now is to give a middle finger to that person <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to hear that but there is a lot of that isn't it I mean I think I've banged on on this podcast so many times about the problem with the education system and how it views a lot of creative things like that because obviously as a kid just you know drawing or painting or whatever a baked bean tin like that's a, you know that that's just the joy of doing it for the sake of it it doesn't even need mm. to be like you know it's also sub- somewhat subjective but yeah well I'm glad you're proving them wrong now I'm sure you are <laughs> Marcus what about you would you have a an early creative memory yeah like I vaguely remember it but like my mum always brings this this one up I, I don't know how but basically I don't ever remember not being able to read uh, apparently I could read by the time I got to school <laughs> by the time I got to primary school and when I was there apparently I wrote a poem when I was four and it it said something along the lines of peanut on a railway track silly little nutter a train comes down the track choo choo peanut butter and I think off the back of that, like they called my parents in, was like, this kid is gifted, he's doing this already, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> I, I didn't know what was going on. I was just, I just like reading and stuff. So yeah, like is if I can like literally trace back any sort of significant creative thing that I'd done, that's probably the one. And I think just the amount that I read all the way back then is what stood me in really, really good stead going forward because I didn't really that much beyond that point and <laughs> uh, at leaving school to GCSEs. So I think that was peaked at the age of four. It's interesting that you've been honest about sort of leaving school with two GCSEs because again, it just shows that you don't necessarily need to have like good grades in school to go on and have a career in this industry. And like, you, you know, as there's so many different paths and I know you had like, you went to uni and did other things before you 
went to the film school and stuff as well but it's just interesting to sort of hear that so early in your journey yeah yeah it's, it was i mean i had a pretty tough time through school not through like bullying or anything like that at all really but i basically i started off super gifted and then just drifted for it and it turns out like i know like now that i'm neurodiverse but at the time mm. it wasn't caught so yeah for whatever reason i've just got left through the school system because i didn't really cause an issue i just sat at the back drawing or doing whatever and so yeah it was one of those but I'm, I'm I'm thankful for it because I think if I'd actually got pushed through the academia route I'd be doing in fact I'm saying that thankfully I did it didn't happen but probably if I did I'd be here with like my own house and car and <laughs> kids and a family and stuff and actually be in a stable position but yeah but I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now which I think exactly what I'm supposed to be doing so yeah mm. as, as you're saying it's just every path is completely different no for sure and I appreciate you sharing about the neurodivergent stuff so I'm, I'm dyslexic and dyspraxic so I had a Hard time at school sometimes as well. And I think like Oz was saying with the big bean tin, like I think a lot of I internalized a lot of rejection of things from teachers at school mm. and I now put them into what I do as a creative. So it, it always fuels your art, I think, that stuff for sure. Sort of the next part of this question, which I always love asking people, is about how where you're from has influenced you as creative people. So firstly, where are you both from and how has that influenced you in your work to date? can start with you this time marcus yeah i'm from the midlands so in northamptonshire so east anglia and yeah i mean i i couldn't say how it's influenced my art actually but i think just the way some of the characters that i write talk to each other when, when my films do have dialogue the way they speak <laughs> to each other is uh it's very <laughs> kind of I don't know, lots of sort of swearing, potty mouths and just sort of like, I guess, like I grew up super working class and all my family, like most of them don't own houses and things. And that's, yeah, the way people interact is just odd, <laughs> like screaming and shouting and just very, very dysfunctional. It's like it's like the royal family, basically, like that was what we grew up watching because that was the closest thing to seeing yourself on TV. That, that was kind of it. So I think there's an element of that within it. But then there's I never also like felt like part of that. But I think that's just because I'm quite like floaty headed. So I drift off quite a bit. So I think I'd say like a mixture of fantastical fantasy stuff, surrealness mixed in with that is is just seems to be what's come from that sort of upbringing, I guess. Mm. Well, it's really interesting how you talk about there not been a lot of things on TV that sort of represent where you're growing up and your sort of upbringing and stuff. Do you think that's changed now? Just off the quick, just to go on a quick tangent. Yeah, I mean. It was more like, I don't know, cause I'm not saying it from a point, a point of view of being like a black person. I'm just saying like from a point of view of being just a working class person. Because, mm -hmm. I don't know, when you grow up in a place in like a predominantly white area as well, you kind of forget that you're black until someone tells you, which is usually free mm -hmm. <laughs> racism. So you just don't think about it really. And you spend so much time integrating, you just kind of don't think about it. And you just, when you see something like the royal family, like, oh yeah, that's us. That's what our families are like. So that was that was kind of it but as I've gotten older and I've kind of left where I'm from and looked at the background and kind of seen the place where I grew up for what it was and how sort of like backwards it is in terms of its attitudes and not backwards but like I guess it's just very very dated and but because it's so normalized to kind of be homophobic racist or misogynistic there it's not even seen through those terms like at all so yeah so I, I guess like I think things have changed for sure for the better I think it's gone so quickly that I think 
it's made people uncomfortable. Yeah, but I think it will balance out eventually. That's, a, that's an interesting observation. I appreciate you asking that follow-up question that sort of went on a tangent there, but it's really interesting to hear that. And mm. Yeah, I agree. I think it probably has, it probably is going quite quickly and that's maybe why we're getting this backlash on some things, which is also a bit ridiculous. And I think, you know, there's a lot of cultural wars and stuff going on, but that would yeah. spend a whole episode talking about that. But, but thank you but also, for that answer. Also, I was going to say, just to add on to that, I think some people, like, I think the people who are making like adverts and things, they're like, I think they're too conscious of it. So, like, when you watch adverts, it's just like everyone is black, <laughs> and you sit in the cinema, and it's like, I mean, someone needs to be like brave enough in these in these places to be like, let's just have white people, like, because I mean, it's not, do you know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> so, you also, I suppose, you don't you don't, don't, don't have to seem like to. a total tick box exercise, and then almost undermine the whole point as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah it's, it becomes disingenu- disingenuous then. It? That's mm-hmm. what it is. It's disingenuous. It beyond what you're watching then, it's like, oh, for fuck's sake, come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it, it needs to happen to it for it to not be thought about anymore, I guess. Mm. No, for sure, 100%. Oz, what about yourself? Where where did you sort of grow up and how is where you're from influenced you as a director and a creative person? I grew up in Halifax, West Yorkshire. So I was born and raised there. I grew up on an all-white council estate myself. But I was very fortunate that I actually went to a grammar school because in, in Calderdale, which is the borough, both those are grant-maintained grammar schools. So if you, pass mm. the, if you pass the testing off, then you can actually get in. And I did. So I went to a grammar school in Halifax. And, you know, when I often think about it, that I'm really glad that that opportunity was there for me to do that because the school that I was at was so rough. It was the feeder school for at that time. I think in 1996, that secondary school that I could have gone to that was the feeder school for the mm. primary school I went to was deemed the worst school in the country at the time. And it was really, really bad. So, you know, my life could have actually gone a completely different direction. And it was only because of sort of like, and it's another reason why I became a teacher, actually, because it was the discipline that was instilled in me at grammar school that actually made me kind of like focus on certain things in my life that I needed when I was faced with adversity as, as I was mm-hmm. going through my teenage years. So growing up on the council estate, what it did give me was it gave me a bit of a entrepreneurial kind of hustler mentality. And mm-hmm. that has helped me quite a lot, obviously in film, because you have to have that mentality to actually get anything mm-hmm. done. And then through that as well, growing up on the council estate, I think that it did. I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but it did probably fill me with a lot of empathy for the working class because I was from a working class background myself and what used to happen quite a lot on TV is that whenever anything working class was on TV it was punched down and I think that the only reason why I think shows like Royal Family was so good was because it was actually looking at them with humanity mm, yeah. and it was wholesome and that's why I think it landed I mean I'm a huge fan of Only Fools and Horses I think it's amazing but it there was an element of punching down on it and laughing yeah. at the working class whereas I think that what Carolina Hearn had done and she's one of my favourite writers actually was was amazing so I think that that's that, that's kind of what it was for me was that even though I was from sort of like a, a mixed Pakistani Indian background my kind of lens was quite unique looking at the world through that and yeah you know that that's one of the reasons why I try and have all my characters appearing as being right regardless of what side of everybody else's right and wrong they are because I, I, I think that I try and see them with humanity, which is what that place taught me. It's really interesting to sort of think about all the, you know, as you're saying, all the characters, like, think viewing that way, and it, again, quite a nuance. Thank you very much. That's a really nice answer as well. Just before I go on to some of the more technical stuff, another question I love to ask guests, and this will tie into where you're both from, but do you have, like, a favourite word or phrase from where you're from? So, always starting with you, do you have a 
Is there a word or phrase from Halifax that you like to use a lot or that you remember? No, not really. I don't know. They're different. I have different words from different periods of my life. Like, I, and, and it depends if I say it, if people actually get it. Like the other day I was speaking to someone, this other director, and I used the word rago, and she understood what I meant. Because that, well, I was, cause when I was at uni, I was in London. And back mm. then was when the when the first sort of like incarnation of grime and and garage to grime had started. So I use that word. I love that word, Rago. Well, no one uses it anymore. That's a good word. I've not had that one on the podcast, so that's good. Uh, I can't think of one, but I had a flashback of something my cousin said, which is fucking disgusting. I'm not even sure if it's worth saying. To be honest, it's so vile. It's it's like actual the worst language. Like like you can you can, you're gonna edit this, right? Yeah, we can edit if need be. It's fine. It's it's just a thing of my cousin. This this is how we grew up. My cousin was like, "Can you? What's the worst two words you can think of, like together?" And I, I was like, "I don't know." And he said, "I think it's sick." And I was like, oh. "To be fair, she is a Scot. That doesn't sound that bad to me." Because in in Scotland, like the word, especially, I mean, I'm not from Glasgow. I live here now at the moment, but the word is just banded about. Like, yeah, it's a fair I've never term heard of it with sick. I'd never yeah. heard it like together. It's like a single term. I was like, yeah, it's pretty evocative. Yeah, but yeah, I can't think of anything, to be honest. I draw a blank. Fair. Well, thank you both. I appreciate the answers. I don't want to go on to like your, you're still laughing at I'm still laughing at <laughs> yeah, and you're appreciating it. It's like, you don't have to appreciate it. It's very I'm polite. <laughs> Listen, I honestly. No, you should it. appreciate sick, Jamie. What's, there's a line in The Favourite, which is like, he's absolutely <laughs> struck us enough. Oh, that was hilarious. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, the word you're speaking to is the word one in um, House of the Dragon. Marcus says, What the year there's one in House of the Dragon? What is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, it's struck. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's we still, we still laugh, we still laugh at that when we used to hear it every time we yeah. take on it. Oh, brilliant. Well, just to, to sort of go on to the sort of journey into both becoming directors, I know you both talked about this on your own podcast in more detail, and maybe for tonight's so it will be a bit shorter about it, but like. Obviously, Oz, you were a teacher for 10 years, etc., yeah. a long time. And then you, before you sort of finally made the move to start becoming a director, Marcus, I know you did lots of other stuff. You were making stuff for a long time. But I wonder if you could both sort of take us through the short version, maybe, about how you both ended up getting into directing, like what your first steps into it were. So we can start with you this time, Marcus. Yeah, so it, it was definitely like, I. it was when I went to university, really. I pivoted from doing sport and did media instead. And... Yeah, I think when I was there, like the friends that I made in the first week, they were all doing film and I decided to change from doing radio and yeah, when I did that and then just fell in love with it immediately and realised that I kind of knew what everything was. I just didn't like what everything meant. I knew I understood all the theory, but I just understood it inherently. But I just I, I went to university and learned the theoretical names of things. That was it. Like and the areas and film history, that was kind of it. But I knew how films function and stuff. So I then just went about making everything I could, freelancing as much as I could and getting better technically, learning about editing, camera work and transitions and all these sorts of things. And then set about learning storytelling once I kind of learned the technical aspects of filmmaking. And it all happened very quickly from there, really. Yeah, it, it was much harder to learn and it's still trying to learn, which is a good part of the... It's something I enjoy a lot, is like learning how to craft narratives and characters. I think that's where you can never stop learning, really. But yeah, it was all from that, really. And, and is that is that a succinct answer? Yeah, no, very <laughs> much so. And from then, did you like... Obviously, when you were a video producer and you were making stuff for a long time, how long did it sort of take you to sort of decide to go and study it like at the NFTS like was that something you were always conscious of doing or did that come a bit later by chance yeah so I did my BA in at Luton which is the worst bottom of the university rankings which is great 
and it was there i applied with my graduation film to the nfts and didn't get an interview so i was like cool there goes that dream and then i got because i got first i got a scholarship to do a master's at the same uni for free so i did that mm. and then because i built up a portfolio when i was there i got headhunted to be a video producer in london straight after my master's so literally like i graduated and then the following monday i was on my job and then there i was probably like just writing scripts mm. for about two years but also on Saturdays, I was working with like a few people who liked comedy and doing sketches. So I was making and writing sketches for them. So I was still making stuff and trying to get BFI funding and whatever else and getting on some talent labs with my scripts. And then, yeah, I ended up getting to a point where I, I got really angry because I got double rejection in the same week. And I was just like, I don't know why I'm not just going and making something based on what I have around me because why am I waiting now? This is ridiculous because I got shortlisted once and then didn't get it. And then I applied again the next year and didn't even get through to the next process. Like this, I didn't get shortlisted that year. So I was just like, this is bollocks. So then that's when I, I decided to like look at what I had around me. Went out that weekend and wrote a script. Did like another draft every weekend after that. Got like four drafts together. Managed to get like five crew and a couple of people that I met to get involved. I'd acted it myself and then just went and made it. And then that got me into the NFTS. I, I didn't even plan to go to the NFTS at that point because I was, I was like, on the point where I was, I'd stayed an extra year in my job video producing in the same place where I was because it was easy and I was used to it and I didn't have to try. But I was like, as soon as I finish this film, I'm going to go and get an, a new job higher up. I'm going to get a pay rise and kind of rise up that way and get better kit and just grow. But then I ended up, as I was like just finishing a rough cut of the film, I was on Twitter and I saw that the applications for the NFTS was open and like a week away. So I was like, you know what, fuck it, I'll just send the rough cut. It's 50 quid, nothing to lose. So I just did and then ended up getting brought in for an interview for that. But I'd actually aimed to finish it for the London Short Film Festival deadline. Yeah, which we didn't get into in the end, but I got into the NFTS. <laughs> so it's like... Yeah, it served its purpose once I got in there. Amazing. No, thank you very much for sort of taking us through that. I'll, I'll do some more follow-up in a second. But Oz, you obviously, as I mentioned before, we're, we're teaching and stuff. And you got into the sort of industry. You actually ended up doing a feature as your first sort of big thing, didn't you? Which is quite an incredible story. Yeah, I did. And when I was teaching, I had this opportunity to... Because I wanted to be creative. And I remember back in... It was 2014, actually. There was one of my mates had done it. He did this commercial for a charity, and he said, do you want to come and just like, hang out? Because I've been doing like bits and bobs, just a bit of hobbyist, creative stuff, doing DSLR revolution, and just kind of like, look, you know, learning about like After Effects from crack copies of CS6 and whatever. And then he said, he goes, just come down and hang out. So I did. I went down and hung out, and I thought, oh, I really like being on set. I really enjoy it. I didn't know what the real job of a director was, I'll be honest. And then... I thought, right, and then it took me another couple of years to actually think you have to try and, like, pivot. So I, I went to this course, I remember. I can't remember. It was with um, Philip Bloom and this other guy up north, a filmmaker. Danny Lacey, I think he's called. So I went for that for a day, and then he said, he goes, if you want to come into filmmaking from another career you, and you've got family, you've got to try and find clients, do corporate stuff so you can pay your bills and, and, and then so you can pivot across. So I did that, and I, and I tried to, like, do corporate stuff on the side whilst I was teaching and it was it was really hard like really really hard like I was so tired sometimes I would fall asleep on traffic lights it was that bad but it was just hard trying to pivot because I was like I'm earning money as a teacher I have to replace that income for me to actually go into that and then I got this kind of role at this studio this sort of like independent studio in Yorkshire called British Muslim TV and then they said do you want to do a feature film that we want to have for this year and take it on a tour 
because the previous one we had last year, we've had to buy it in and then we've had to give it back and license it. So we want to make our own so we can keep all of the asset. And they said, it's a rom-com. And I thought, why are they asking me for? I actually don't know what I'm doing because I didn't really have anything. Anyway, it was kind of like a thing of where they took advantage of me for the fact that he'll at least get it finished. Because I used to, like, like they were a bit of a client of mine and I used to always get stuff done. You know, even if it was shite, I would finish it. And I, and for me, it was like, it's going to be a film school. But what, what I realised after doing that whole thing that actually what I was doing was producing. I actually wasn't using any sort of like, I wasn't directing, I was just doing stuff mm. and I was putting stuff together and I was all right, I was good at that. And I didn't know that that's actually producing. And I, I only learned that, I learned that much later. So I did that feature film and it was great to have that opportunity. But I, I wrote it actually as well because they gave me like a brief which had, I think they did the first draft actually. No, I tell you, yeah, the truth is they, gave, they got a first draft of somebody else and I rewrote that and made it my own. I think they, they paid somebody who like did it in two weeks. They, they probably used AI. I was like, how is this person written a script in two weeks? Like, <laughs> it was just, it was just mad. It wasn't very, I don't want to say it's not, it's not very good because I'm not going to trash that guy's work, but it was quite formulaic. And, and at the time, even though I was completely green and didn't know what I was doing, it kind of read like that to me. So then I went, I, I, I got some help from someone called Euroscript that I found from the BBC Writers Room website. And they kind of helped me in a couple of passes to try and get it to a certain level. And then we, yeah, then we shot it. And then when it finished, I realised that, oh, damn, I actually don't know what I'm doing. I don't understand storytelling. I don't understand anything about directing. So then I started a journey of trying to understand. And the first thing I did was the year after in 2017 was when I got into the NFTS and in 2018, I made a film from that first course, which was a diverse director's course. And then from there, I think that's when my kind of real journey to understanding storytelling and learning storytelling began. And I realised when I made Curfew, which was my first film there, it was the first time it was something that represented me. Mm-hmm. And, and it was something that had my voice in it. Well, it was truthful to me and it was a very, very important movie for me. If, if that would have flopped, and I said this to Lewis Arnold on our podcast because he was the one who helped me make that film in terms of backing me and saying to them, let him do the film that he's written. And if he fucks it up, that's his film to fuck up. If he hadn't have done that, I wouldn't be sat here right now. I'd probably gone back to teaching and being more stable like what Mark was saying. Yeah. He was doing somewhere else. But... Right, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be directing. I think that's really interesting that how much humility you had to actually re- be like I didn't know what I was doing on that feature because you you do know that there would be some people that would do that and go I directed a feature film like I'm hot shit like I can do whatever. Do you know what I mean? But you obviously recognised. You know when you were going, you know what you're saying about the about what we learned from where you grow up. Well, I, you know I grew up in Halifax and in Halifax you couldn't be fake. You had to be fucking real or you got caught out and you'd get outed and you'd be like you know mm. like street cancelled so you couldn't be fake and so because of that i've never been fake like if there's something i can't do like even like when i was young if it was a scrap thing i was like look i'm gonna get battered here i'll be up from me i ain't no fire so let's let, let's not do that and find another way to manipulate all these brains <laughs> to do what we need to do but that is all it was it was just i'm not fake i don't like being something that i'm not mm. but from listening to you talk about that story on your own podcast and that uh, i think it's the first or second episode i can't remember which one but you were sort of talking about like the skills that you did have on it which was like being a good leader and sort of being good with mm-hmm. people and which is really interesting because obviously i'm sure a lot of that comes from teaching as well and it just shows you in this industry so many transferable skills and things that's all from yeah. teaching all of it mm. is from teaching i remember when i did my first teacher training i was looking at this teacher she was brilliant she taught me how to behave your manager and behavior manager is central to teach if you can't manage behavior you are not a teacher you're a fraud 
It's as simple as that. doesn't matter how much you know your subject. Kids will kill you. They will destroy you. They're cruel. They don't care. But at the same time, they all need you to be a leader in the classroom. And I remember when I saw her, I thought one day I want to try and be like her. She just commanded so much confidence in the classroom. And those kids were rowdy. They were from Wigan. They didn't care. But she just had them under manners. And they were doing what they needed to do. And I learned that and I focused on that and I worked that and that became my superpower power with behavior management. Through relationships, if we're just through relationships. Mm-hmm. If you, you can't tell a kid, go and do this, they'll say to you, you know, F off. But if you build a relationship with them and they understand that you genuinely care about them and they gen- you genuinely want them to do well, they will. You know, like teenagers are smart people. They can smell bullshit. Mm-hmm. My mum's a teacher, a primary school teacher, but she's going to be listening to this and nodding along, I'm sure. But I, I think it's so rare. St- well, maybe not rare, maybe that's harsh, but I think in this industry, there's a lot of really talented people that don't have the leadership skills or don't have the skill set to work with other people or don't maybe understand it. I think there's definitely yeah. not, not enough of that. And it's not taught, so I'm not having a go at anyone individually. I don't think the industry, particularly in TV and film, teaches people that. So there's a lot of people that are really good at a job and then they get promoted to be you know, more senior and, and or a head of department and they maybe don't have that knowledge and then obviously throw in the work and hours and all this other stuff. So I just think it's a really interesting skill to have and a really important skill to have it it really is and i think this is why the i think the training for directors is pretty much inadequate in this whole thing so i mean fair enough nfts is, is good in that you get put in that place to like that's the first time when i led a crew of 20 to 30 people and you learn it there so that's kind of you learn to do it but if you don't go through that system i mean what else do you get into do that it's so many people they can make shorts outside of, of that and it's like it's so difficult to pass to go from making something with your mates or like kind of dragging a film upwards yourself to, to be able to like sit down and know what everyone's going to need at what point that is what directing is and to be able to do to do that is unless you go to film school it's hard to learn that i think yeah it's very tough 100 percent. and i wanted to sort of this may be a good time to ask this question about your this sort of shadow scheme you both did and how you met on House of Dragon and stuff because I mean no career in this this TV and film industries I, I imagine is straightforward but I think it's easier with other roles sometimes to know how to move up there's a hierarchy for example my job as a script editor like I started off as a trainee then I became an assistant and now I'm a script you know what I mean so slightly more mapped yeah. out like there's different variations of it you know a development script that are in a, and a production script that are slightly different but when you're a director it's very hard to because there's not like you can obviously be a trainee director and stuff but you can't just you you sort of go from that to then being a director so it's a really hard as you both know sort of job to know how to start in it and as you've both talked about in your own podcast before like often people will make a couple of short films and then suddenly they have a bit of momentum and buzz around mm. them and then they just get chucked in the deep end so like tell us about the shadow thing how does that work for directors and what did it sort of do for both of your careers start with you this time Marcus? yeah so i mean with, with what you just said i think a lot of the, what the problem is that people there's too much of a mystique around directing and so people are terrified of elevating people into the job and it's not trained very well but literally we so we recorded an episode for our new season today and the first hour of it literally it's the fundamentals of what directing is and if you learn that it's like that's where everything grows out from it's really really simple and i don't think it's as difficult as people think it is because we literally we covered it in one hour exactly what you need to be doing as a director like in one hour like but then it's it's how you then go on to apply it. But because that information, whatever reason, mm. people see finished films and lose their shit and swoon over it. They think it's more difficult than what it is. But yeah, I guess it does link into your question in that, like when we got on House of the Dragon, honestly, like when we got there, I was like, 70 to 80% of this we can already do. The rest of it was that we were just kind of like in meetings and watching how the information was like disseminated to every single department. And we're in the rooms 
And the main thing is that we were learning is like, this is literally no different. Like, I promise you, like, I think I said it in the podcast at one point, but I remember just saying to the girl, I was like, this is just people playing dress up. <laughs> like the first time I saw it on set, I was like, this, this is literally people just playing dress up and taking it really seriously. And he's like, yeah, I was like, this is weird. And he's like, it is weird. Because it, the whole thing is like, I, I didn't ever plan to be an artist. So when I come in, now that I'm in like an artist sort of space, I just see it as in like, I think the whole thing's quite ridiculous and stupid a lot of the time. And that's my own self-judgment. But it helps me not kind of get lost in and swept up in the grandeur of whatever people think this is. Because for me, it's not that. It's just, it's very sort of like simple and practical and it's a skill you can learn like anything else. So House of Dragon taught me that and just reaffirmed that. But then, yeah, just how the scale of it, like, and how the crews move. And I think a lot of it was just being there. I made sure that I was just on set as much as I could be. And I think after about six months, I fully grasped everything. Like I, I was there on set and I remember if I, I'd see problems ahead of time, I'd be like, okay, this is happening. This means we've got this much left in the day. Like it just all made complete sense. It, we, we could literally like, if there's anything we missed or like if we, we'd be on set or we'd be in a meeting we had literally access to go and anywhere and speak to anyone. So we could like follow a decision to every single department, which no one else, I, I don't know any directors that got that sort of experience of knowing directly how a throwaway comment in a meeting affects every other department. Like that's the privilege which we had from being there. Yeah. So it's knowing how it all functions, but also knowing the human cost of the decisions. So like to do a meeting on a Friday when you're shooting the thing on Monday and you, you're holding this meeting in the afternoon, and you're coming out of new shit, which people are learning for the first time, you've instantly ruined everyone's weekend. But it's like, where if you're ahead, of, if you're actually on it and you do this early on in the week or ahead of time, then people are going to be able to action stuff properly. And yeah, so it was really, really priceless as a, a thing, but I, I just got everything from it, really. Like I, looking at the top of the mountain is not intimidating at all because like from being there, it's like, cool, here's all of the tools and this is the pathway up. So now it's just like, great. That was such a, an interesting answer and there's also there's lots to unpack there but I just want to quickly say I love that you sort of recognise in small things like scheduling a meeting on a Friday and this little tiny things because one of my favourite things about being a script director is you get to work with the execs and the producers so you get again you're getting that access with the directors and with all the heads of departments at quite a young age and you get to sort of see mm. it all up close but no there's so much unpacking that answer and lots of you know it sounds like just from being there you got to sort of see things up close and how it all works. Oz did you have a similar experience on it? Do you have do you share a lot of the same viewpoint? Yeah, I mean, everything that Marco just said there is pretty much speaking for the both of us because we were there every day together. And when we did our learning, we did it together. That's why we both benefited most, so much from it because we didn't just look at it as my experience or it's just his experience. We It was both our experience. And because we, we approached it like a department and because we had access to everything, we left no stone unturned. There is nothing about that show that no one can ask us and we wouldn't have an answer or some visibility of some kind on it and we just followed the breadcrumbs all the way through we had we had a better vantage point than the showrunners because we were all, we, we you know we could see on the ground what was going on in the trenches and then we could go to the ivory towers and see what's going on there yeah. and know exactly Probably what blew it through the hierarchy yeah 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 so and that was a blessing and that was because of both you know miguel Nick and Ryan Condo, who were generous enough to just allow us to just roam free and just do what we need to and have access to everything as well. Mm. You know, I think that's another thing I love about script then, and as you sort of almost because it's not a very big department, you are almost a bit free in a way. So you, there's I struggle with hierarchy sometimes just mm. because, again, it comes back into that like 
I think obviously people know more than other people and you need some sort of hierarchy for a set to run but I think that it's problematic in some ways because a lot of people get sidelined or you know don't get listened to and stuff but I think I, I love being able to just sort of roam around and feel like you can speak to all these different departments and sort of see it all but no it's do you how important do you think doing a shadow thing is for a director would you recommend it to other directors Oz? I think it, it depends on it came it came along at the most perfect time for me because I'd done a bit of shadowing before on his Dark Materials, but I didn't know kind of like what I knew, but I'd exhausted everything by that moment. Like I needed it. I needed everything to be demystified. I needed to, to gain confidence in understanding that this is not rocket science. This is just getting access to information and understanding it. And it's one of the reasons why we made the podcast. Cause it's like we've, you know, when we look behind the curtain, it's like, this ain't so bad. This is just like, you know what I mean? This is not, this is not people with stuff that we don't have. And I guess when you are coming from a working class background, you kind of do, you know, to see beyond the ceiling can sometimes be quite hard. And I will I will say this, that there was no difference between us and the other people on House of the Dragon that were those upper echelons other than opportunity and experience. No difference. And I remember Claire Kilner used to say that to us in the kitchen. She'd say, you two can do this. You can do it. It's just like, fine. And it's because she struggled. She was locked out for years. And, you know, when she got in, it's like, yeah, look, she's killing it now. Absolutely smashing it. And I'm sure at one point she's doubted herself many, many times. Many a time. There'll be, yeah. there'll, be so, there'll be so many people listening to this right now that are probably still doubting themselves. And I think it's really refreshing to have people like yourselves on who, you know, even though to the outside, everyone probably thinks, oh, there must be smashing about it. I know you've been very honest about you that, you know, it's not always plain sailing for either of you. And, you know, there's still ups and downs and... You know, it's it's a really hard industry, even if you have a bit of experience under your belt. So I think it's good to to talk about these things. So thank you for that. So Marcus, what do you have a, a sort of answer for that as well? Yeah, everyone should do it. It's uh, <laughs> I think it's definitely like a really really important thing to do. Even if it's not shadowing, you need to work on a set to see how it functions and runs, so that you're at least used to the rhythm of it. And I think shadowing in particular, just so you you're there with that focus of of being there to see how directing specifically works. You're not distracted by any of the jobs. I think yeah. Just, just to make it easy for yourself. But yeah, I think uh, it's it's difficult. If you've got a support network of directors that you might know anyway, like you don't necessarily need to do it, I don't think. I think the main thing is that you're making stuff with the crew and, and learning that really and listening to podcasts like the Directors Take podcast to kind of fill in the gaps and be right. <laughs> no, 100%. Well, there you go. That was part one of our conversation with Marcus and Oz from The Director's Take. Really, really insightful stuff and I hope you enjoyed it. Be sure to come back and check out part two. In next week's episode, we really get into some of the more crafty stuff and Marcus and Oz really talk about some of the specific skills directors need and some of the things they've learned while making their own films and from speaking to such amazing people on their own podcast. So next week's episode is great as well. So be sure, yeah, be sure and come back for that one. And as always, if you've enjoyed this week's episode, be sure to share it on social media. Subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening Spotify now is a follow option and also just please get in touch if you're enjoying the podcast it's always lovely to hear from our listeners but yeah that's all we have time for this week thank you for listening and I hope you have a wonderful week just get a real job.